Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. This episode is part of our mini-series on the Tudor dynasty. Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, mother and daughter, are two of the most famous women in English history. Elizabeth had her mother's dark, flashing eyes and her elegant, long fingers. It's probably under Elizabeth that we see the portraits of Anne Boleyn being produced that we know so well. And Elizabeth was, of course, the inheritor of the new religious world that Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII's love affair had helped to create. And yet, they had so little time together. Anne was executed when her daughter was just two years and eight months old, and she had lived separately from her child since Elizabeth turned three months old. But today's guest argues that Elizabeth cherished her mother's memory. Although the later queen practised an accustomed discretion when it came to her mother, my guest suggests that Elizabeth used deeds rather than words to convey her true feelings. We so wanted to be true. But is she right? To explore the evidence, I'm delighted to welcome as my guest Dr Tracy Borman. Tracy shares the position of Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces with Dr. Lucy Worsley and is also Chief Executive of the Heritage Education Trust and Chancellor of Bishop Grosse-Tête University in Lincoln. However, does she find the time to write her many books, the latest of which is Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed history. Dr. Bowman, Tracy, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It is an absolute delight to welcome you and to have a chance to talk to you about your latest book. Yeah, I'm really thrilled. Thank you for inviting me. So there's so much to ask you about, but I thought in order to concentrate our attention, I would pick up the story with both our protagonists. Your book does obviously briefly cover Anne's biography before 1533, but let's start with Elizabeth's impending birth because you so vividly evoke the experience of Anne's lying in your book. Could you describe it for us? Yeah, so a confinement for a royal wife had very strict rules, and it's thanks to Henry VIII's grandmother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, who set down some strict ordinances for the lying in of a queen. And some of them made sense. They would be served only by women. I guess it was quite an intimate space. But then also they dictated things like there could be no natural light in the birthing chamber. So tapestries were hung over the windows. Pieces of material were stuffed into keyholes to keep out natural light. 
fires had to be lit in every room. And now we're getting a real sense of the suffocating atmosphere, I think, that Anne would have endured that August of 1533 in Greenwich. But of course, she was going to stick to these ordinances to the letter, really, because she didn't want to take any risks. She knew there was an awful lot riding on this birth, as did Henry. She very dutifully obeyed all of Margaret's rules. But her confinement wasn't a month. It was supposed to be a month that you would spend in your confinement. But either they'd mixed up or perhaps been not entirely honest about their date of conception, because Anne was only in her birthing chambers for about a week or two, and then her labour began. Perhaps there was some agency there. She was thinking, I'm not going in there too soon. It's going to be awful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Very sensible, actually. So, of course, Elizabeth is born, and you very helpfully give the corrective that actually it isn't despair between the royal couple at this point in time. There's every hope that this means there's going to be boys in the future. Yeah, that's right. It's easy, isn't it, with hindsight to say this was the beginning of the end for Anne. It was not a disaster. It was a disappointment and it was a setback and it was a bit embarrassing, particularly for Henry after everything he'd done to marry Anne. But she had proved that she could come through a birth. She could survive unscathed and so could her child who was thriving. So it wasn't a disaster at all. And what I really love actually is that Anne herself showed no regret, no disappointment. That was all Henry. Anne doted on her child from the very beginning, asking that Elizabeth be placed next to her on velvet cushions so she didn't have to be parted from her, and even causing a bit of a scandal by expressing her intention to breastfeed her daughter, which definitely wasn't done in a royal wife, and she had to step down from that intention. But she was proud of Elizabeth and made sure that everybody honoured her as the heir to the throne that she was. Now, there were ways of parenting royal children that meant you kept them with you. Isabel of Castile, for example, had kept her children by her side. But the Tudors often sent theirs away very young. Prince Arthur, of course, being separated from his parents at the age of six weeks. And so Elizabeth is sent away from her parents at three months old. You say that and dotes on her baby. Maybe she couldn't change this pattern. What evidence do you have of her influence on choosing those who would be around her daughter in her absence? This is where she really did exert her influence. It's interesting, though. Did Anne try to stop this departure by Elizabeth or... Actually, I think probably she didn't have any choice at all. Henry had made it clear she was now under pressure to fall pregnant again, which... She did pretty much around the same time as Elizabeth left for Hatfield, the place appointed for her household. But Anne was determined that her influence wouldn't end there. So she handpicked nearly every one of the 50 or so attendants who accompanied this tiny baby north of London. And it was a household stuffed full of Berlin relatives, Berlin associates. Anne's determined Elizabeth is going to grow up a Berlin, not just a Tudor. And she had remarkable foresight in her choice of women because quite a few of those stayed with Elizabeth for the rest of their life and would be intensely loyal to her and ultimately, tragically, would be replacement mother figures when Anne was executed less than three years into Elizabeth's life. Yes, it's interesting what you say about the possible pregnancy. Of course, 
there's a big question mark over the 1534 pregnancy and we don't know whether it was actually a pregnancy at all or what became yeah. of it but there's a good scientific reason for thinking she might have conceived at that time though we can't go much further than that which is that if a baby is taken from a mother after a short period of time apparently the female body thinks that the baby has died and therefore it actually increases fertility after that point Absolutely. I have read it. It can be one of the most fertile periods, that sort of immediate few weeks after a birth. So, yeah, it does stack up. But as you say, it's a mysterious one because everybody's talking about it and then suddenly nobody's talking about the pregnancy. So we don't know if she miscarried or if there was a stillbirth, but it seems to have been either hushed up or misreported. It is really difficult to pin down, isn't it? Just how many miscarriages Anne actually had. I tend to go with three, but it's very difficult unpicking the sources for that. Anne's mothering is certainly done at a distance. She sees Elizabeth again only three months after she left, which is a hugely long time when we're talking about the difference between a three-month-old baby and a six-month-old baby. And then Elizabeth doesn't come to stay at court for a prolonged period until the early months of 1535. So she's not spending that much time with her, are there other signs of Anne's investment in her daughter? There are. There are certainly gifts. And I think it's Anne who inspires Elizabeth with the love of fashion that we definitely see when Elizabeth is queen. And now Anne was noted for that too. She was very stylish and she invested a lot in her wardrobe. Of course, part of that was PR. She had to project her right to be queen and she had to project her daughter's legitimacy as heir to the throne. But it went beyond that, I think, and went to enormous trouble over the gifts that she chose for Elizabeth, made to measure velvet caps and beautiful dresses in colours that would set off Elizabeth's red hair, bright yellow and green. So she certainly inspired, I think, Elizabeth's enduring love of fashion. But more profoundly, she also started to shape Elizabeth's religious outlook. She appointed her chaplain, Matthew Parker, to attend Elizabeth and preach sermons to this tiny princess at Hatfield. And she asked him later to pledge that he would always look out for Elizabeth. And he certainly honoured that. Parker would become Elizabeth's first Archbishop of Canterbury. And I don't think we talk enough about Anne as a genuine religious reformer. Yes, Henry might have gone through the break with Rome, really sparked by the desire for an annulment. But for Anne, it was genuine. She wanted to reform the Catholic Church, and she certainly instilled her daughter Elizabeth with the same kind of reforming zeal that would ultimately become known as Protestantism. Yes, you detail the extent of Anne's religious patronage, and it's really wonderful to have that all put in one place, precisely because it testifies to her activism on the basis of her beliefs. Yes, exactly. And we focus on the dramatic part of Anne's story, don't we? Inevitably, because we know the kind of dramatic rise and then the dramatic fall. But in between, she was enormously influential. She took risks for her faith, importing banned heretical texts and actually showing some of them to Henry. So she was always a great advocate for religious reform. And she was listed by one member of Henry's court at the head of a group of four or five really influential religious reformers, including Thomas Cromwell, her erstwhile ally. Of course, they would clash over religion and the dissolution in particular with fatal results for Anne. But we should, I think, focus more and celebrate more 
the influence that Anne was able to have during her brief tenure as Queen? We do focus a lot on the downfall, so I'm going to skip over that slightly. We all know what happened, because I want to focus on how Elizabeth was treated immediately after Anne's death. Mm. What we don't know, and I do conjecture a little bit about this in the book, is how she was told, when she was told what had happened to her mother. So she was only two years and eight months old. I guess it's easy, isn't it, to layer on modern perspectives and think perhaps they were sensitive about it and held back the truth. But the Tudors had a different view of society. They were a bloodthirsty lot. They went to bear baitings and cockfighting and they didn't hold back, I think, when it came to children. And children became adults much sooner. At the age of six, they started to really be considered as little adults. So I think the likelihood is Elizabeth was told pretty quickly what had happened. And there's that famous quote where she asks, why are people calling me Lady Elizabeth, not Princess Elizabeth? So she cottoned on to the fact something profound had changed. She's quickly sent away from court. She had been in Greenwich with the court shortly before her mother's execution. Henry sent her away and it was as if he didn't want to be reminded of Anne at all or his younger daughter. So she was raised by that household, but it was a diminished household. And the words rats and sinking ship spring to mind because, of course, they all knew they're now serving an illegitimate member of the royal household. So their status has declined. But the good ones stay with Elizabeth, like Blanche Parry and Cat Astley, handpicked by Elizabeth's mother. Her childhood does settle down. She moves from residence to residence, sometimes spending time with her siblings, her new baby brother, Edward, her elder half-sister, Mary. And her father does very occasionally invite her to court, but it's not all that often. But perhaps that was partly welcome for Elizabeth after the turbulence that she did at least have some peace and quiet for some of her father's reign, even if she wasn't exactly celebrated as an heir to the throne. I did feel interested in the idea, though, that given that today we talk about primary attachment figures, there clearly was no one permanent in those first four years of Elizabeth's life, except perhaps her half-sister. What was her relationship with Mary like during Henry's reign? This is where I think Mary deserves to be rehabilitated. And actually, she deserves a lot of credit for how she treated Elizabeth. When Elizabeth was very young, you might imagine she would hate this daughter of the woman who destroyed her own mother. But she seemed to dote on Elizabeth. I think Mary was naturally quite a maternal woman. And she even tried to persuade their father, Henry, not to forget her and to look kindly on Elizabeth. And I think that really is greatly to Mary's credit. So growing up, Elizabeth was very close to Mary. And it was only really when Mary was queen and when their differing religions divided them that their relationship began to unravel very rapidly. She was very much a positive female figure for Elizabeth when she was growing up. And it is amazing because you detail the extent of Anne's cruelty towards Mary. It is very much, as you say, to Mary's credit, that she doesn't turn that against Anne's daughter. It's yeah. quite astonishing. It is astonishing, and it shows that what Mary was made of, really, because that was another reason for her to hate Elizabeth. She was made to serve this little princess, whereas before she had been the princess, the heir to the throne. 
but she didn't seem to take that against Elizabeth at all. She certainly despised Anne Boleyn, but I think with good reason, as you say, Anne was pretty despicable towards Mary. But yeah, against the odds, the two sisters, I think, grew very close. Now, you have an interesting theory about Elizabeth's translation of Le Miroir de l'Âme Percheresse by Marguerite de Navarre. And I want to press you on this a little. You suggest that maybe it honours Anne Boleyn as much as Catherine Parr. Mm. And Catherine Parr, of course, if we think of mother as a verb, is the woman who is mothering mm. and arguably doing quite a lot more mothering than Anne Boleyn did or had a chance to do. Mm. Could you talk to me about the ways in which you think that Elizabeth's miroir from 1544 reflects the impact of both these mothers? Yes. So I do think it's a compliment to both mothers. Undoubtedly, Elizabeth was very close to Catherine Parr, but she was aware of how close her mother Anne had been to Marguerite during the years that Anne spent in France. And what an influence actually Marguerite had been on Anne's outlook. This was this very powerful figure, brilliant mind of the French court, Marguerite, and a great influence over Anne. And that Elizabeth is very interested in all things French, actually, throughout her life. Now, I'm not attributing that entirely to Anne Boleyn, but I think it was part of the picture that Elizabeth grew up a great sort of Francophile, really, and very interested in the books that her mother had read and the influences that she had been surrounded with, so as well as Marguerite, also Christine de Pizan, who we probably very anachronistically could call one of the earliest feminists writing in the 1400s. We know that Anne Boleyn read her works. And later on, Elizabeth chose some tapestries depicting Christine de Pizan's most famous work, The City of Ladies. And she chose them from among her father's possessions after Henry VIII died. And they may have been brought by Henry for Anne Boleyn. So again, a strong connection to her mother. So yes, that gift, that translation was a great compliment to Catherine Parr but I think it was probably inspired by Anne Boleyn. Now, on an almost daily basis, you must see the painting from 1545, the family of Henry VIII that hangs at Hampton Court. And we've obviously got Henry at the centre with Edward and Jane, and we've got Mary and Elizabeth in the picture. And you suggest that the pendant that Elizabeth is wearing is, you call it Anne's famous bee pendant. And the reference you make is to Matthew Parker's correspondence. Now, everybody can bring to mind Anne's famous bee pendant. Can you talk about the evidence beyond what we can see? This is an A and not a cross. And the extent to which you think that in 1545, Elizabeth might have been doing something yeah. quite so radical as honouring Anne in a picture. Yes, because actually, I'm pleased you asked me about this. My thinking has slightly moved on because I heard an interesting new theory about this. So it's the A pendant that Elizabeth, I think, wears. That hasn't changed for me. I do think she's wearing her mother's A pendant in the portrait. I had long thought this was a bit of kind of preteen rebellion on Elizabeth's part, that she by now was fascinated by her late mother. Now, there is other evidence to suggest she was, certainly, and that she was loyal towards Anne. So this was her making quite a brave statement of support for her mother. Perhaps I always thought they sat separately for that painting. I think that's likely anyway. It was a pretty vast commission 
And so that's how she got away with it. But the theory that I heard recently, I actually find quite compelling. And that's the decision for Elizabeth to wear that may not have been hers so much as her father's. Because in that painting, Elizabeth and Mary are shown outside those central pillars in which Henry sits with Edward and Jane Seymour. So the message is very clear. These are the legitimate ones in the centre and then the illegitimate girls either side or young women. And Elizabeth wears her mother's A pendant. Mary wears a cross. So it's almost like indicating who they both are. Look, don't forget Elizabeth. She's in the line of succession, but she's just the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And Mary, she was a Roman Catholic. She's a Roman Catholic. She's the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. That marriage wasn't valid either. So it might actually not have been something that Elizabeth prompted, but that her father did. I think that's quite interesting. That's what makes me keep coming back to history, new theories coming up all the time. But I think that one might be worth further investigation. Yes, it certainly could explain their placement in the picture. Mm. And it's a very interesting question with all portraits from this period. Who is deciding what? Are people wearing the clothes that we see them wearing? Have they chosen them for a reason? Their jewellery, their sartorial choices, also interesting. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's skip ahead slightly then to Mary's reign. You note that Elizabeth was housed in the tower, in the very rooms that her mother had been put in before her execution, which must surely have been traumatic. And then she's released after a period of time and is under house arrest in Woodstock. In this period of time, do we see associates and attachments that speak to the, a continuing commemoration of Anne in her life? I think we do. I think, yeah, that episode in the tower must have been terrifying. Talk about psychological torture, housing her in the same apartments as Anne, waiting until the 19th of May to release her, the anniversary of Anne's executions. Yet that was a very sort of negative association that Elizabeth encountered with her mother. But you do see that the people she's surrounding herself with, not just in terms of religion, she's gathering these sort of reformers around her as much as she can under Mary's scrutiny. But one person I would point to in particular who becomes friends with Elizabeth during this time is Henry Norris. 
That name's familiar to those who like the Tudors. The elder Henry Norris, of course, was one of the five executed for adultery with Anne. And he was the only one to speak out for Anne from the scaffold and protest her innocence. And his son and namesake met Elizabeth whilst she was staying at Ashridge and they would visit each other quite regularly. And Elizabeth grew incredibly close to Henry Norris and his wife, Marjorie, and they would both benefit when she was queen. Really, they could do no wrong. They were both promoted. She kept them both close and she made it clear the reason she loved them so much is because Henry's father was the only one to defend her mother on the scaffold. So Elizabeth, for the most part, I should say, preferred actions to words when it came to Anne. She doesn't mention Anne that much. But when you look at who she surrounds herself with, who she honours before and after becoming queen, really, the Berlins rule supreme, I think. I'm glad you said that, because I really wanted to ask you about your methodology because we're looking for evidence that Anne is attached to the mother from whom she was separated at three months and permanently separated from at two years and eight months old. And you say that she has this accustomed discretion, but that we need to think more about her deeds than her words, as you've just said. So let me play devil's advocate. <laughs> Can we be sure that what we're seeing is Elizabeth's true feelings towards her mother? Or could there be other reasons to explain her chamber appointments and her patronage? Of course, there are always two sides to the story, but there's so much evidence, both in Elizabeth's public and private world, for how she honoured the Berlins and therefore her mother. When you look at her possessions, the things that she chose from Henry's possessions when he died. She didn't go for the rich items, she went for the items associated with her mother. And she didn't necessarily display those, she just kept them. That's quite powerful. And certainly with her court appointments, it was almost impossible to get a job unless you were a Berlin, really, in Elizabeth's court. By contrast, she wasn't all that nice to her father's relatives, but you might then say, yes, but they had a stronger claim to the throne. They were more of a threat. Of course, she's not going to treat them in the same way. But I think when we look at both the personal and the private evidence, really, for Elizabeth's association with her mother, for me, it's really compelling. And we haven't mentioned yet my favourite of Elizabeth's possessions relating to her mother, the checkers ring, which... It's just probably one of my all-time favourite items and this beautiful locket ring that I think is just so symbolic of how Elizabeth honoured her mother because it's both public and private. Of course, it's quite well known now, but at the time it was a locket ring. You have to open it up to know that there are portraits, almost certainly of Anne, I know there's some debate there, and of Elizabeth. But then when closed, it just looks like a ring with a E-R in diamonds on the front, and only really Elizabeth and perhaps her closest friends would have known what was inside. And I think that's very typical. But yeah, there's propaganda at play here as well, because Elizabeth has to convince people that her mother wasn't just the great whore and that her marriage to Henry was valid, because otherwise it weakened Elizabeth's own position as queen. Can we talk then about her omissions on taking the throne? She doesn't repeal the succession acts that declare her illegitimate and her parents' marriage unlawful. She doesn't move her mother's body to somewhere more fitting. 
Can we talk about what she doesn't do and what she did do and what we should make of these decisions? Yes. So I think it's interesting because there is a shift as her reign goes on. But early on, Elizabeth is playing it safe and she is very conscious of not literally digging up the past. People expect that she's going to have her mother reburied. Anne has been laid to rest in the chapel of St. Peter Advincula in the tower, the sort of final resting place of traitors. The speculation that she'll have a move to Westminster Abbey or elsewhere. But Elizabeth knows how divisive a figure Anne still is. She also knows that at least half of her subjects don't think she has any right to be on the throne. She has to tread carefully. And it's actually Francis Bacon who advises her against overturning that Succession Act, repealing the annulment of her parents' marriage. And he said it so much more eloquently than I'm about to paraphrase, but it was about a sore that has been overskinned. Basically, don't pick the scab off that particular thing because time has healed it. So Elizabeth heeds that advice and she treads carefully, but not always. I love the fact that on her coronation day, so the coronation itself was inspired by Anne's. Elizabeth used the same set designers. And she has a life-size model of her mother on the processional route alongside her father in order to display the kind of family tree in life-size. She's discreet, but only up to a point, I would say. That's wonderful as a piece of evidence. I wonder if we can be sure it points to Elizabeth encountering this statue of Anne and her white fork and crowned. Because, of course, in Anne's procession, we have evidence that some of the pageant some of the designs by Holbein for example are not being paid for by Anne much as we want them to be but by others of the city of London so how much can we be certain that Elizabeth is commissioning what we see in her coronation procession what's the evidence here there are detailed accounts of the plans for the coronation procession now of course that they don't carry Elizabeth's signature on every page handily but it just fits with what else we know about how Elizabeth reacted to her mother, how inspired she was by her. And yes, there may have been others who also cottoned on to this would be a good idea to flatter the Queen by flattering her mother. But Anne was such a divisive figure that I think Elizabeth's courtiers and the City of London, for example, they were very uncertain how to talk about Anne Boleyn or perhaps thought they shouldn't talk about her at all whereas Elizabeth took a different view and I do think Elizabeth's hand can be seen in things like the coronation procession and just the personal touches how she herself chose to be dressed and there's a preponderance of white as there had been in Anne's coronation and the same crown likely as was made for Anne was worn by Elizabeth she wore her hair loose like Anne and you might say yes was that influenced by Anne or, or was it just coronation tradition or was she trying to evoke the same sort of themes of kind of virtue and the Virgin Mary possibly but it's so strikingly similar to her mother's coronation, that I think that was an inspiration for Elizabeth. I think you're right about looking to how other people possibly took a lead from Elizabeth, or if not, chose to mark her lineage themselves. Because you point out a couple of different pieces of material evidence, as we call it now, material signs of memory. Beyond those that she inherited, you talk about the Gresham Linens or the Norwich City Gate. And here, I suppose, we've got a bit of separating to do. Is it possible to separate out Elizabeth's desire to commemorate her mother and how other people are feeling about making the most of that? Some things are more clear, the charter, for example, that you point to. But others, 
muddy the waters and again and again we have this plausible deniability I suppose <laughs> that it's in the hands of other people a lot of the time. That's right but I think Elizabeth does really set the blueprint early in her reign. She makes it clear enough that she's going to honour her mother and the Berlin appointees I think are really a clear signal of that and I should say as well that it's really only maybe 20 or so years into her reign that her courtiers start to follow suit big time. So this is when, as you say, the Gresham table linen, which was made for a banquet attended by Elizabeth, and it was decorated with embroidery that showed the Queen, but also her mother's falcon. And you start to see that falcon everywhere. It becomes one of the most popular emblems, not just at court, but in the houses of Elizabeth's attendants and ministers. And this is interestingly, when Anne's portrait starts to be popular as well. So we think we have no surviving portraits of Anne from her lifetime. We actually don't know that for sure, but a lot of them date from Elizabeth's reign and were commissioned by her courtiers. So by now it's well known if you want to flatter the queen, honour her mother in some way. But also it's a sign that Elizabeth is more secure on her throne and she doesn't have to be quite so cautious as she had been in the beginning. So she talks about her mother more, she mentions her more, she displays her emblems an awful lot more than she had, not just the falcon, but the armillary sphere, Anne's earliest known emblem, this sort of chart of the planets, the solar system, that a lot in Elizabeth's dresses and elsewhere, and the clothes of her courtiers. So there's very much a sense that it's okay to talk about Anne Boleyn now, as Elizabeth's reign goes on. And a more concrete example comes from Elizabeth's response to the defamatory tract written by a Frenchman. Can you tell us about this? Yes, this is wonderful, because for all that Elizabeth is a great pragmatist and she's very diplomatic, her feelings towards Anne do cause a rift between England and France, because early in her reign, so in the 1560s, you're right, a defamatory pamphlet appears in France, in Paris, I think, and it calls Anne Boleyn a Jezebel and is absolutely scathing about the Queen's mother and all of her sins. And Elizabeth goes ballistic when she hears about this. She demands that the pamphlet be immediately withdrawn from circulation. Now, the French king, or more precisely, his domineering mother, Catherine de Medici, they're very slow to act. And Elizabeth keeps pestering her French ambassador Throckmorton, what have they done it yet? Have they withdrawn it yet? I'm basically going to war over this. She's furious. And the slower they are, the more furious Elizabeth becomes until eventually they do concede and they do order that the pamphlet be withdrawn. But the damage has been done by then. Lots of people have seen it. It's a very popular thing. And perhaps in a way, Elizabeth inadvertently drew more attention to it by creating such a stink. But it was really such a rare example of how Elizabeth is not going to put politics first in the early part of her reign. She's going to go into battle to defend her mother's reputation. And it's funny how that is actually a reflection of Henry's response to Lancelot de Carles' poem in French about Anne's life and death. He also didn't like certain bits of it, as the latest research by Joanne Delaneva has suggested. So we see a reflection of her father in response to information about her mother. Yeah, exactly. I think Elizabeth, she inherited traits from both her parents. And then you do see history repeating itself, although in a slightly different way, as you say. But yeah, interesting parallels there. 
Another parallel that is notable is that Elizabeth's court is famed for exactly the sort of courtly love practices that had indicted Anne. What do you make of that? Yes, it was. Both mother and daughter loved the game of courtly love. And I have been asked many times, and in fact, I do tackle this question in the book, was Elizabeth the Virgin Queen because of Anne Boleyn? And so that whole personal life of Elizabeth was, I think, influenced by Anne. But as I said, they both loved to flirt. They were both great flirts and they loved having a court full of male admirers. But I think Elizabeth was always very keenly aware that this game of courtly love was a dangerous one. It had effectively cost Anne her life. So she, while she played the game, she was determined to win it by keeping the rules very clear. And her court, I think tellingly, was described as being at once both gay, decent and superb. And that word decent was crucial here. So, yes, Elizabeth was Queen Bee and all of these male courtiers pretended to be in love with her. But she upheld the morality of the court very strictly. And that's at least part of the reason why she was quite so harsh on any of her ladies who conducted affairs in secret, who fell pregnant and who married without Elizabeth's permission. It always ended badly when they did because she knew they were a reflection of herself. So, yes, they both played the game, Anne and Elizabeth, but ultimately Elizabeth won it. Finally, then, you say that Elizabeth didn't take up Alexander Alice's offer of writing a history or tragedy of the death of your most holy mother early in her reign, but conjecture that she may have commissioned a biography of Anne from George Wyatt, who was yeah. the grandson of the poet Sir Thomas Wyatt, who yes. had known and probably loved Anne late in her reign. Tell me what led you to this conclusion. So I think it's all about timing here. Alice was proposing this sort of biography of Anne, but obviously very complimentary to Anne early in Elizabeth's reign. But this is when she's still treading a little bit carefully and she's still more focused on practical ways of honouring her mother, not so divisive ways as a great big book saying Anne was amazing. Whereas later in her reign, she's much more confident, much more secure. She knows that she has won over far more of her subjects than supported her when she became queen. So I do think it's possible. It's one of those things we'll never know. But the hint was always that George Wyatt's biography had some great patron, whether it was a senior member of Elizabeth's court or indeed the queen herself. And it would be in keeping with what we know of Elizabeth being increasingly confident in honouring Anne as her reign progressed. It's one of those tantalising things and one can only speculate, but my money's on Elizabeth. <laughs> You've given us this wonderful sense of Elizabeth's devotion to the memory of her mother, a mother she barely knew, but idolised all the same, as being very much like that ring, that hidden, tiny, close, intimate possession. But perhaps over the course of the reign, she's opening the locket so people can see it. That's a wonderful image, and I think it's absolutely spot on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to giving us this great sense of the possibilities of seeing Anne Boleyn triumphant in Elizabeth's reign. Mm, a triumph she didn't live to see, but goodness me, she would have enjoyed. Perhaps we might say 
Revenge is a dish best served cold when it comes to Anne and Henry. <laughs> thank you so much, Tracy. Pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.